Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, today we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. That's in the five o'clock hour. He's an authority on a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court decision not to hear arguments in the uh, administration's DACA case, uh, what it means and what's next. We'll also talk about what it doesn't mean. There's a lot of talking about uh, who benefited by this decision by the Supreme Court. We'll try to put that into perspective. We're also going to talk with Catherine Clark. She's the author of Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope, published by Moody. That'll also be in the 5 o'clock hour. And we'll bring you the latest as uh, the uh, body of Billy Graham lays in repose in North Carolina on its way soon to Washington, D.C., where it will be in the Capitol Rotunda. The funeral on Friday will tell you the details. Uh, For those of you who'd like to listen in, and that is uh, available to anyone around the world who has access to the Internet. So we'll tell you more about that. Well, this is uh, breaking news. Just came in uh, before I started the program today. House Bill 4135 passed the Oregon Senate. That, of course, is the uh, the bill that we have been concerned about, brought to our attention by Oregon Right to Life. The stated intent of that bill's author was to update the advance directive. It also paves the way for health care representatives to remove access to food and water for vulnerable Oregonians with dementia and Alzheimer's. And that's the element of it that has raised the concern of pro-lifers all across the uh, the state. Oregonians should be able to trust their elected officials to act in their best interest. Lois Anderson, who's the executive director, says this bill is a betrayal of that trust. The brief hearings held in committees showed significant problems with the bill, especially the testimony from doctors who know well what Oregon patients need. House Bill 4135 originally passed the House in uh, on February the 16th, the vote there was 35-25 in a party line vote. The bill now goes to the governor. She is expected to sign it. So I want to commend those of you who took the time to communicate with lawmakers. Uh, but unfortunately, that apparently has passed both the House and the Senate, and it has been sent to the governor's office. Also, this um, breaking news story, investigators are looking into an apparent hazmat situation at Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall in Fort Myer, Virginia. A number of people began feeling sick after opening a letter, according to officials. Arlington Fire, one of the units responding to the scene, said 11 people started feeling ill after the letter was opened in an administration building. Three patients were hospitalized, were said to be in stable condition. And according to the U.S. Marines, personnel took a preventative measures and evacuated people from the building. Several Marines are receiving medical care as a result of this incident. The suspicious substance has been bagged by authorities and the FBI is making their way uh, to the scene at this, uh, at this time. I don't expect we'll have much more definitive information uh, before this program ends, but uh, at least that is an ongoing investigation. 11 people uh, apparently made ill, uh, but all are expected to uh, survive and are in stable condition. Well, earlier today, Florida Governor Rick Scott unveiled new school safety plan, hoping to lead the way for governors from all across the country. It was difficult to uh, get the details of that plan. I heard uh, the exposition of it, but wasn't able to follow up with more details. But he was flanked by two fathers who lost daughters in the events that took place in Florida almost two weeks ago and has expressed his determination 
to resolve that issue in the state of Florida. We'll bring more details to you at another time. Meanwhile, the Broward County Sheriff, um, we are told, received at least 45 calls about Florida shooters, the Florida shooters family, not 23, although there seems to be some confusion. Now, there were two boys that lived in that household, and many of those calls were for his younger brother. Now, the Broward County Sheriff's Office received at least 45 warning calls about the Florida shooter's home and his family over the last decade. Now, that's over a 10-year period, not the 23 calls the office claims it received. Now, they have made, they might have made the distinction between calls made for the shooter or the shooter's brother. But nonetheless, CNN reported earlier today that records it got from the sheriff's office showed at least 45 interactions from 2008 to 2017 about Cruz or his brother. Some of those warnings said Cruz could be a threat to the school uh, he shot up on February 14th. And of course, in, in hindsight, those should have been taken much more seriously and the expectation is that if they had acted upon them, this could have been avoided or prevented. CNN said it received records showing 39 calls from the Cruz's house, from the house itself, but the Broward County Sheriff's Office has insisted only 23 calls were received. The office released a statement insisting it was 23 calls and said over the week, stop reporting 39, it's simply not true. Additional logs received more recently showed the number was actually 45 calls from the Cruz home. Now again, this, according to CNN, spans a 10-year period Period. So the discrepancy might be something as simple as a misunderstanding and not an, an attempt on the part of Broward County to conceal actual data. We don't know the answer to that question, but there have been increasing calls for the sheriff there to resign after details of how uh, his office uh, did not handle this situation well, beginning with those early calls and the event as it unfolded at the school some two weeks ago. By the way, new research from the Parents Television Council has found that television violence and gun violence in particular that is uh, rated appropriate for children has increased on primetime broadcast television shows in the five years since the shooting at Newtown uh, Connecticut, uh, the Parents Television Council compared TV PG and TV 14 programs from one month after the 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas, Nevada, to those of a uh, month following the December 14, 2012 mass shooting in Newtown. During the November 2017 sweeps period of primetime broadcast TV shows, almost 61 percent, that's 175 out of 287 episodes examined, contained violence, and 39 percent, that's one. 112 episodes contained violence and guns. Of note, the study period was approximately one month following the Las Vegas mass shooting in October of last year. The study period in 2013 was about one month following the Newtown mass shooting. Comparatively, research conducted by the Parents Television Council in 2013 during the month following Newtown found that on primetime broadcast television shows, nearly half contained violence and almost a third contained violence with guns. Now, I know there are people who'd like to suggest that that has absolutely no influence, but I think it ought to be a part of our ongoing conversation. Meanwhile, a federal judge today ruled against an environmental challenge to the president's border wall, delivering a win to the Trump administration in a decision that allows construction plans to move forward. We're talking, of course, about the border wall. In a 101-page ruling, U.S. District Court Judge uh, Gonzalo uh, Curel uh, wrote the, uh, that both the Congress and the executive branch share responsibilities in protecting the country from terrorists and contraband illegally entering the borders. The case involves the 
Trump administration's ability to ignore environmental laws in the construction of the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. The project had been challenged by several environmental groups and the state of California. The ruling will now allow the administration to issue waivers on environmental laws and build sections of the wall of the border wall. Border security is paramount to stemming the flow of illegal immigration that contributes to rising violent crime and the drug crisis and undermines national security. That's a quote from Devin O'Malley today, the Department of Justice spokesman. Uh, Congress gave authority to the Department of Homeland Security to construct a border wall without delay to prevent illegal entry into the United States. And by that, by the way, that authority predates the uh, Trump administration. And we are, he went on to say, please, the uh, DHS can continue this important work vital to our nation's interests. Well, California Attorney General Xavier Bacara, he issued a statement saying his office will evaluate all of their options and are prepared to do what is necessary to protect our people, our values and our economy from federal overreach. A medieval wall along the U.S.-Mexico border simply doesn't uh, not belong in the 21st century, he went on to say. Well, had the judge ruled against Trump, he could have undermined the construction of barriers on the um, unfenced portion of the border. The Trump administration was sued by the state of California back in September as part of its effort to block any construction of the border wall. Cruel is the federal judge who then candidate Donald Trump accused of being biased against him due to his Mexican ancestry during the campaign. Well, the judge whose parents immigrated from Mexico was attacked by Trump in 2016. Trump said Said the judge held tremendous hostility against him in a lawsuit involving Trump University because of his Mexican descent. Well, apparently that did not color or influence his decision in this case. Hmm, Mr. Trump. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Special counsel Robert Mueller moved today to dismiss nearly two dozen charges against former Trump campaign associate Rick Gates in the wake of his guilty plea last week. Well, his team filed a motion to drop 22 tax and bank fraud charges against Gates. The filing was tied to Gates' agreement last week to plead guilty to conspiracy to defraud the United States and lying to the FBI. Well, that plea pertained to charges filed against him in October in Washington, D.C., for which he still faces up to 71 months in prison. Well, under the terms of the deal, the government had agreed it would move to dismiss another set of charges brought against him more recently in a Virginia federal court. Those charges covered everything from alleged tax fraud to bank fraud. The filing today indicates Gates' cooperation with the special counsel team could be yielding good information as it uh, pursues charges against former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. Gates has some intimate knowledge of Manafort's years of political consulting work in Ukraine, as well as other events that have sparked the interest of federal investigators. The superseding indictment still applies to Manafort, who last week blasted his ex-partner for pleading guilty to Mueller's uh, October charges. Uh, Whether or not um, Gates knows anything or has anything to say that's uh, constructive with regard to Manafort is not clear at this point, but certainly does raise eyebrows. Notwithstanding that Rick Gates pled guilty today, Manafort said, I continue to maintain my innocence. In a statement uh, last week, he said, I had hoped and expected my business colleagues would have had the strength to continue the battle to prove our innocence. For reasons yet to surface, he chose to do otherwise. Well, those reasons will inevitably surface. Manafort went on to say, this does not alter my commitment to defend myself against the untrue piled up charges contained in the indictments against me. Manafort still faces charges in both Washington and Virginia, and he's scheduled to appear 
in court in Alexandria on Friday. President Trump's allies, meanwhile, continue to argue that the probe has not uncovered any evidence of collusion between his campaign and Russia. Trump tweeted earlier Tuesday in reference to the probe witch hunt. Well, the hunt continues however you want to uh, to label that. Well, White House Communications Director Hope Hicks appeared before the House Intelligence uh, Committee today for a closed-door interview related to Russian interference in the 2016 election. But according to Democrats and Republicans on that committee, she's refused to answer the questions about the president's transition or her time at the White House, telling the panel she was instructed not to by the White House. Um, says Representative Denny Heck, who is a Democrat from Washington, Speaking to reporters, uh, we got bannoned, he said, um, as he emerged from that uh, that meeting. It was a reference, of course, the White House chief strategist Steve Bannon's uh, refusal to answer any of the committee's questions on the same subject. Representative Peter King, a New York Republican, said in an interview on ABC News that she was uh, she has answered every possible question on the campaign. And my understanding is that the White House has asked her not to answer questions on the transition and her time in the White House. Representative Mike Quigley, who's a Democrat from Illinois, said the committee should subpoena Hicks for her testimony, as with anyone that doesn't answer questions. He went on to say no one is asserting a privilege. They're following the orders of the White House not to answer certain questions. Well, unlike Democrats, King was reluctant to compare Hicks to Bannon uh, because she remains in the White House while he was not a White uh, West Wing employee when he appeared before the panel earlier in the month. Well, asked uh, at the briefing today whether the White House had instructed Hicks not to answer certain questions, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said, we are cooperating, but I'm not going to comment on any single individual's interaction with the committee. Well, Hicks was initially said to appear before the committee back in January, but her interview was scrapped over questions about the scope of the investigation and the questioning in the White House's claim of executive privilege. Earlier this week, Bannon and former uh, Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, they declined to answer many of the committee's questions as well. Bannon was instructed by the White House not to answer questions about the transition or his time in the White House, according to sources familiar with his testimony. And he returned to Capitol Hill this month after two days of interviews with special counsel Robert Mueller's team but refused to answer any questions other than those on a list pre-approved by the White House, claiming he had been instructed to invoke executive privilege on Trump's behalf. It's not altogether clear that that's been done before in quite this way. Republicans and Democrats on the committee are now considering steps to hold Bannon in contempt of Congress. Not clear if that's also going to be the case uh, with um, Hicks. Meanwhile, the um, president's son-in-law has lost his top secret intelligence um, uh, clearing uh, security clearance. Uh, he does have um, secret clearance, but not top secret. He won't receive the president's daily brief as a consequence. White House senior advisor Jared Kushner's interim security clearance has been downgraded. A government source says uh, a move that restricts him from viewing the president's daily briefing. Kushner, who is also the president's son-in-law, was one of several White House aides who've been working without a permanent security clearance for the better part of a year. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly had set a February 23rd deadline for halting access to top secret information for those whose applications have been pending since June or earlier. As an apparent result, Kushner's clearance was downgraded from interim top secret to interim secret. Now, this doesn't mean that he has been downgraded on the merits of his application, but that the application has not been approved. And therefore, until it is, he will not have access. Now, a spokesperson for Kushner said in a statement that the new clearance policy will not affect Mr. Kushner's ability to continue to do the very important work he's been assigned by the president. His portfolio once included the U.S. 
relationship with China and Japan and a host of domestic priorities, including infrastructure, trade and economic development. But his freewheeling reach in the foreign policy space, which was viewed as um, undermining Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, had already been curtailed somewhat under Kelly. Trump said on Friday that he would leave it up to Kelly uh, to determine the status of Kushner's clearance. And Kelly has spoken. Uh, the president also heaped praise on Kushner, calling him a master deal maker and saying he's done an outstanding job. He further asserted that he inherited a broken background check system in which uh, it can take months and months and months for full security clearance to be granted, even for people without complicated financial holdings. Kushner has been forced to repeatedly correct omissions in his uh, SF-86, the governmental form used to apply for clearance, as well as his financial disclosure forms, which experts said could delay or even mix uh, his ch- this uh, chance of earning a clearance through the normal process. Kushner has also uh, come under scrutiny in special counsel Robert Mueller's ongoing investigation into Russian interference and the 2016 election. Well, meanwhile, the White House's handling of security clearance has come under intense scrutiny in the wake of revelations that former White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter had worked for more than a year with only interim clearance. Porter, whose job gave him constant access to the most sensitive of documents, has been accused of domestic abuse by his two ex-wives. The White House has repeatedly adjusted its timeline about who knew what and uh, and when about the allegations and the scandal uh, has weakened Kelly's standing both among staffers and with the president. But it continues. Now, let's see. We're about three years away from the 2020 or two years away from the 2020 election. Well, the president today, just one year into his presidency, stunned the political world by announcing that he's running for reelection in that he named his campaign manager. Uh, The bold move comes 980 days before Election Day. It's an historical record. Uh, Barack Obama announced 582 days out, so 980, 582, which essentially means the 2020 presidential election began today. Oh, please. Reprieve, reprieve. Uh, The president has tapped Brad Parscale. He's a towering, bearded political consultant described as a genius by The Washington Post. I think they'll describe him differently after this. But uh, he's the man that led the 2020 reelection bid or is uh, going to lead the 2020 reelection bid as the campaign manager. He has uh, previously worked for the Trump Organization, worked as Trump's top digital operations guru in the 2016 campaign, was credited for uh, possibly tipping the election. Born in Topeka, Kansas, he says he spent 15 years building his company. He started with just $500 before moving to the Trump Organization in 2010. But as he moved up the ranks to eventually take control of the Trump campaign's digital arm, he wielded significant influence, pushed the campaign to invest in social media advertising, particularly Facebook. You want a great product? You want things to resonate with people and make them dance? He said in a conference in November, the Washington Post called him the genius who won Trump's campaign. The campaign poured money into Facebook, sending thousands of versions of tweaked ads to maximize response, a profile from the Post said. Then it won the presidency by a margin uh, narrow enough for Pascal and Facebook uh, to justifiably take credit. As campaign manager, he will be the spotlight significantly more than he was in the previous role. 2016 campaign manager Kellyanne Conway was regularly on television, pushing the campaign's agenda, drawing a significant amount of media scrutiny, giving very, given, however, very little credit for being the first woman to head up a major campaign that 
succeeded. An imposing figure himself, Pascal is taller than six foot th- uh, three, the president. Any emphasis on Facebook is likely to draw additional scrutiny in 2020, as it uh, has since been revealed that Russia-linked individuals use Facebook as part of their strategy to sow discord in U.S. politics in 2016. But like Conway, he's shown unwavering loyalty to the president. So the 2020 presidential campaign has at least officially begun. If you if, if your prayer life is suffering, you don't know what to pray. You might want to get on your knees about that. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. that will try to help us make sense of the Supreme Court decision not to hear arguments in the DACA case, as the administration asked that uh, they take it up without the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, doing so first. We'll explain why they made that decision and what it means. We're also going to talk with Catherine Clark, uh, When I End, A Story of Tragedy, Truth, and Rebellious Hope, uh, by Moody, the author. Well, Idaho has become ground zero in a new Obamacare fight. Yeah, you haven't heard that uh, word, that phrase used uh, recently, with officials pursuing major changes that could serve as a national model for other states looking to expand insurance options to define the, uh, in defiance, rather, of the law, even as Democrats warn of higher costs for vulnerable customers. As soon as April, Blue Cross of Idaho is planning to make new options available there. That's what Governor Butch Otter and Lieutenant Governor Brad Little co-signed an executive order asking the Department of Insurance to seek creative ways to make health coverage more affordable. The move opened the door for plans that don't adhere to Obamacare coverage requirements, through which um, the the Trump administration testing is testing similar ideas. The state may be unlikely to face much resistance from the White House under this circumstance. Uh, it is uh, in Idaho's DNA not to take a federal solution, says the governor there. Well, perhaps uh, the example in uh, Idaho can help chip away at Obamacare, Little said in a press conference. The state's insurance department now arms, uh, or rather aims, to let insurers sell cheaper, less comprehensive plans that officials project could reduce insurance costs by 30 to 50 percent. Insurance carriers still would have to offer plans on the state's exchange, your Health Idaho, while federal subsidies would continue to be available. Idaho was among the first to act after Congress voted in December to ditch the federal penalty for not buying insurance compliant with the 2010 Affordable Care Act. And though the provision doesn't take effect until 2019 and Congress is unable to ditch the Affordable Care Act as a whole, uh, they were last year, it represents a major swipe at the plan, the policy, and the Obama-era plan. Well, going further, Little has uh, called his state's plan the end of Obamacare in Idaho. We'll see if that is actually the case. That's what congressional Democrats fear as members from the House and the Senate wrote in February 22 letter to Idaho Insurance Director Dean Cameron. We strongly oppose efforts that result in higher costs and undermine consumer protections that are guaranteed by federal law that protect women, people with pre-existing conditions, and other facing others rather facing discrimination and access to health care and therefore request an explanation of how the Idaho Department of Insurance will regulate insurance plans being sold in the individual market that are not compliant with federal law. Uh, the letter uh, was sent from Senators Ron Wyden and Patty Murray, Representative Frank Pallone and Richard Neal, all Democrats. Little um, a Republican candidate in the 2018 Idaho governor's race in which Otter is not seeking re-election. He's the lieutenant governor, defended the uh, sought-after changing, saying, we still recommend the Affordable Care Act plans if someone 
has high pharmaceutical costs or pre-existing condition. If you get into these low-cost plans, it isn't like uh, it used to be. Four of the five plans offer full maternity benefits. He suggests that the current system isn't working. We lost 70,000 who dropped their health insurance because there was a 100% increase in premiums over the last two to three years. Uh, Little, again, the lieutenant governor seeking to become the next governor, has uh, doubts that anyone other than HHS would have legal standing to challenge the policy and a challenge from the Trump administration seems unlikely given the federal government is also moving to offer more low-cost plans. Well, last week, U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Service Secretary Alex Azar announced a new regulation to let health insurance companies sell low-cost, less comprehensive plans that consumers can keep for up to a year. The plans would include a consumer disclaimer that they don't meet ACA requirements, uh, while insurers could charge customers uh, more based on medical history. Azar and uh, Seema Verma, administrator of the Centers for Medical, Medicare and Medicaid Services, met with uh, the governor uh, in Idaho and other uh, governors on Saturday, a HHS uh, spokesperson said. So this seems to be the direction some states are going, being led uh, first by Idaho and uh, perhaps others to follow. Meanwhile, for those of you who weren't listening at the start of the program, we learned today that House Bill 4135 here in the state of Oregon passed the Oregon Senate with a 17-12 vote. While the stated intent of that bill's authors was to update the advanced directive, it also paves the way for health care representatives to remove access to food and water for vulnerable Oregonians with dementia and Alzheimer's. It came up last year. They managed to prevent it from passing. This time around, it passed the Senate Uh, after the House and has now been sent to the governor's desk. Lois Anderson, who's the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, says that Oregonians should be able to trust their elected officials to act in their best interest. Uh, This bill is a betrayal of that trust. The brief hearings held in committee showed significant problems with the bill, especially the testimony from doctors who know well what Oregonian patients need. Well, House Bill 4135 originally passed the House in February, mid-February, in a party-line vote, the bill now goes to the governor. She is expected to uh, to sign it. Well, on Monday morning, the Supreme Court heard arguments in one of the most anticipated cases of the year. Janus versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Council 31. Well, the case, as we've discussed uh, earlier, involves forcing public employees who opt out of, ins- of union membership to pay a fee for the fair share of costs associated with collective bargaining. Mark Janus is an Illinois state employee, and he argues that forcing him to subsidize a union he has declined to join violates his free speech and free association rights. The court's looking at whether the, to overturn a 1977 decision in Abood versus Detroit Board of Education that held that public employees could be forced to pay an agency fee. Well, two cases in recent years, Knox versus the SEIU in 2020, and Harris versus Quinn in 2014 called into question the validity of the Abood case for imposing a significant impingement on an employee's First Amendment free speech and association rights. Well, the court considered this very issue in 2016, but after the sudden death of Justice Scalia, the justices deadlocked four to four in Fredericks versus California Teachers Association, upholding the lower court ruling in favor of the union. Now the agency fees are back at court. Bill Messenger from the National Right to Work Foundation argued on behalf of Janus. He was first at the podium, followed by Solicitor General Noel Francisco, supporting Janus' position. Then Illinois Solicitor General David Frank 
Franklin argued that the court should uphold Abood and the union lawyers, David Frederick, argued last. A few of the exchanges uh, in the argument, in the uh, in the case, rather, how will this case affect the private sector? Well, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg asked Messenger if a ruling striking down a boot would affect private employee unions. In a boot, the court recognized labor uh, peace as a compelling state interest that allowed infringing the First Amendment rights of state employees. Well, Messenger explained that there's no state action in this case of employees of private companies, so striking down a boot wouldn't impact private employers and unions. Francisco agreed that collective bargaining between a private employer and a union representing employees would not involve a state interest. Another uh, issue that was uh, raised, why should unions represent free riders? Well, Justice Sotomayor, she brought up the fact that employees who opt out of union membership would still receive the benefits of collective bargaining without having to pay for them. Messenger responded that these unions are required by law to represent non-members and members in the collective bargaining process. He also pointed out that unions benefit from being the exclusive representative, including employing additional government benefits like paid time off for conducting union business. Well, Francisco explained that in the federal government, unions are not permitted to change non-member agency fees, but more than one in four federal employees still choose to join the union. Further, 27 states do not permit mandatory agency fees and public unions still exist in those states. So what about um, reliance interests? Justice Elena Kagan, she brought up the fact that before the Supreme Court will overrule a past decision, it considers several factors like the age of the decision, how much people have come to rely on it and whether it has uh, been reaffirmed over the years. Abood was decided more than 40 years ago, as Kagan noted. 23 states and the District of Columbia have laws that allow public unions to collect agency fees. Wouldn't a ruling for Janus upset expectations in these states? Well, Messenger pointed out that most collective bargaining agreements expire after a few years, so any disruption would be short-lived. Francisco pointed out that current collective bargaining arguments were negotiated under the shadow of Harris and Knox, suggesting that the unions had plenty of notice that agency fees could be ruled unconstitutional in the near future. We'll find out in the near future if, in fact, that will be the case. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our 5 o'clock hour, we're going to try to get, gain some understanding of the Supreme Court decision not to hear arguments in the DACA case, referred to it by the uh, administration. We're also going to hear from Catherine Clark, Where I End, a Story of Tragedy, Truth, and Rebellious Hope. Well, supporters of free speech should pay attention to three cases before the Supreme Court. I've already mentioned one, which is Janus versus American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees. But a couple of others to keep your ears poised and eyes poised on the Minnesota law that prohibits uh, voters from wearing political apparel at polling places is also being considered. It's free speech at the polls for those who still go to the polls. According to Pacific Legal Foundation's uh, Gaziano, the band include the band rather includes T-shirts, buttons or other items that take a stance on a political issue. Now, if an individual were to walk into a polling place wearing an NRA hat, for example, he or she could be asked to remove it or face possible prosecution or a five thousand dollar penalty. Well, the problem with with the um, Minnesota law is that it considers any type of political messaging to be a threat. Almost any message, including wearing a Minnesota Vikings hoodie, can be considered political. The Supreme Court is going to uh, hear 
oral arguments tomorrow in that case. It may seem relatively insignificant, but for those who have stuff to wear, uh, I suppose it's more significant. And then there's the mandatory abortion promotion. Uh, the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Bacara. Uh, pro-life pregnancy centers are pushing back on California's requirement that they advertise the availability of abortion in some significant detail. The uh, state's Reproductive Fact Act, as it's called, requires the promotion of free or low-cost abortion services elsewhere. The law also mandates some multilingual advertising of abortion providers by pro-life organizations based on a given area's demographics. So you not only have to promote abortion in English, but in any other language that might be spoken in your general area. Pro-life pregnancy organizations are the only ones scrutinized, Lawrence uh, points out, noting that regular OBGYN clinics are not. Liberal political institutions in California want to promote abortion to all citizens, no matter the clinic they enter. Uh, Other courts have invalidated or mostly invalidated similar laws in Austin, Texas, and Maryland's Baltimore and Montgomery counties, and New York City, according to the Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian legal organization. The Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments in that case on the 20th of uh, March. And there have been other efforts in other parts of the country to establish similar laws, Oregon included. Yesterday, we talked to Ron Rhodes, uh, his book, uh, focusing on uh, what's happening in Israel and how one of the statements that he made is how God is bringing uh, Jews back to the nation of Israel or to the nation of Israel for the very first time from various places. And anti-Semitism is playing a major role in that. Well, I noted a story today that the Anti-Defamation League is reporting a 57 percent increase in anti-Semitic incidents here in the U.S. last year, the highest tally that the Jewish civil rights group has counted in more than two decades, according to the data it released today. The New York City-based organization found 1,986 anti-Semitic incidents last year. That's up from 1,200 in 2016. That's the highest total since 1994 and the largest single-year increase since the group began collecting this data in 1979. The ADL said the sharp rise includes 952 vandalism incidents, an increase of 86 percent since 2016. And they also counted 1,100 or 1,015 incidents of harassment, 41% increase from 2016. The national director and CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, said the alarming increase appears to be fueled by emboldened far-right extremists as well as the divisive state of our national discourse. Less civility has led to more intolerance, uh, he told the Associated Press. Greenblatt also acknowledged that heightened awareness of the problem likely led to increased reporting of anti-Semitic incidents. Anti-Semitic incidents at school and on college campuses nearly doubled for the second year in a row, with 457 such incidents reported in non-Jewish schools last year. Uh, They reported, we should see this as an alarm, a very loud alarm that should get the attention of all of us, Greenblatt went on to say. The ADL and other groups have reported a surge in the number of incidents in which far-right extremist groups have posted racist and anti-Semitic flyers on college campuses, at least that's the presumption. ADL uh, spokesman Todd uh, Gutnick said that the report's tally only counts incidents in which flyers had explicitly anti-Semitic messages, although the implication could be present in other incidents uh, as well. The ADL also counted 19 anti-Semitic physical assaults last year, a 47 percent decrease from uh, 2016.
So a growing concern about that and uh, perhaps further evidence of what uh, Ron Rhodes was suggesting is increasing the uh, the numbers of people. And you know, I'm not suggesting most of them are coming from the United States, but certainly is contributing to people returning to Israel incidents of um, anti-Semitism abroad. A couple of things I want to mention before we uh, take a break for the top of the hour and to hear from Hans von Spakovsky on the Supreme Court decision not to decide. Uh, this Saturday, of course, is the um, Ignite Conference, and we would encourage you to join us there. I'm looking forward to a great weekend. It's uh, essentially all day Saturday uh, with women from our community as we really focus our attention on uh, this notion of hope in the midst of a very contentious season in our country. You can go to Western Seminary and uh, put in the phrase Ignite, and you can find all the important details. It's not too late to register. You can also register on site. It's helpful to take some time and decide which of the uh, workshops you'd like to attend. So doing that ahead of time online is always a great idea. But if that doesn't work for you or you decide at the very last minute that things happened and now I can come, please uh, join us. The doors will Open at about 8 o'clock on Saturday at Vancouver Church. Again, all the important details, you can find them uh, at um, Western Seminary's website, um, Ignite, coming up this Saturday. And there's a benefit concert that is being uh, held f- to benefit StandUpGirl.com Foundation. Michael Allen Harris is going to be presenting music on Friday, March the 9th at Canby Chapel. That's on 3rd Avenue in Canby. It's going to be a, a great evening of uh, music. To the heart. Uh, and again, it's to benefit to StandUpGirl.com Foundation. The general admission is $35. You can purchase your tickets online at StandUpGirlFoundation.org slash concert. Space is limited and tickets must be purchased in advance. So make note of that. For more information, if you're not somebody who purchases tickets online, you can also call Stand Up Girl at their office at 503-304-1531. Again, that's 503 304 1531 benefit concert coming up on um, what did I just say the date here on March the 9th at Canby Chapel. All right, there we go. Again, and coming up in the next hour, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's an authority on a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, and immigration. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court. Uh, They've decided that they will not hear arguments on DACA that were referred to them by the administration. We'll find out um, why and who won in this uh, face-off. Some are suggesting that the DACA won, although no decision has been made. Some are suggesting the president lost. We'll try to sort through all of that. We're also going to hear from Catherine Clark, Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday declined to review a lower court ruling requiring the federal government to continue administering the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. The decision is a blow to the Trump administration, or is it? We're hearing different interpretations. On the one hand, we're uh, hearing rejoicing because this is a stay for uh, DACA recipients. On the other hand, that this is a blow to the administration or it gives political cover uh, to the Trump administration. Here to help clarify what the court actually did and declined to do is Hans von Spakovsky. He is a heritage expert. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. 
Georgine, it's nice to be back with you. Well, the Supreme Court decision, uh, for, for those of us who don't watch it and follow closely, might seem to uh, to indicate something significant, but this was more of a a decision made for reasons other than on the merit of the case. Is that an accurate way of interpreting what happened yesterday? No, that's exactly right. If, uh, for those who are reading much more into this are making a mistake. This was a procedural decision. It was not a decision on the substantive merits of the case. What, what happened basically was this. As you know, you know, we have three levels of federal courts in this country. We have the, the district courts, which are the trial-level courts, courts of appeal, and then you get to the Supreme Court. And, of course, what we had was a federal district court, the lowest level, issuing an injunction against the Trump administration and saying, well, you can't end the DACA program. You have to keep renewing uh, the eligibility of people who are already uh, eligible under, under, under DACA. So what the administration did is instead of taking the normal and usual step of, a, of appealing that injunction order, and it's just an injunction while the case is pending, but mm-hmm. instead of appealing that to the Court of Appeals, the Ninth Circuit, they instead did, took the very unusual and rare step of appealing directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. That, that, that's almost never done. The Supreme Court hardly ever accepts uh, an appeal that comes straight to them. And, and what the court said uh, on Monday was, uh, no, we're not going to accept this for review. Um, this is going to be uh, appealed to and reviewed by the Court of Appeals, which is the usual process. But they did add into their order, it's assumed that the Court of Appeals will proceed expeditiously to decide this case, which was a not-so-subtle hint <laughs> to the Ninth Circuit that they, they need to quickly decide this case and not delay what they're doing. Yeah. Now, the administration decided to forego the usual process, perhaps for a couple of reasons. Number one, it would be referred to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that has a reputation of uh, being often overturned. There's a lot of pressure on the timing and the fact that DACA recipients are sort of hanging uh, with uncertainty. What What do you think the motivation was for trying to overstep the, the circuit court and going straight to the Supreme Court? Oh, I think you just summarized them exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure I can add uh, <laughs> anything to that. No, I think you got it exactly right. Um, what's interesting to me about this is that in many ways, I, I, this this ruling actually, I think, is a uh, gives a political advantage to the administration and to Republicans in Congress. Uh, why? Because, look, um, the supposed b- big pressure in the immigration fight that's been going on now for weeks was that March 5th, marked the deadline when the president, remember six months ago, had announced he was going to end the DACA program. But since this injunction now will remain in place and the program's not going to end on March 5th, the time pressure to do something about this with legislation in Congress is is, is kind of gone. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it seems to me this means that they can take a lot more time to see if they can work out some kind of deal while the case is pending. I, I do have to say that I actually believe that even if the Ninth Circuit rules against uh, the administration, I think when this case gets back to the Supreme Court from the Court of Appeals, not only will the uh, j- uh, justices take the case, 
but I think the government is, is going to win because I think the injunction orders issued against DACA have really no basis in constitutional law. Mm. So, again, to make sure our listeners understand, this was a procedural decision on the part of the Supreme yes. Court. It was not a decision made on the merits of the case uh, that was appealed by the uh, by the administration. No, that's exactly right. All right. So what happens next? Um, the case will naturally go to the appeals court. They'll make a ruling. It's probably going to be against the administration, I'm speculating, and ultimately the Supreme Court will decide. Yep, it'll go back to the Supreme Court, and this time, once the Ninth Circuit is ruled, this time the Supreme Court uh, will take the case. I don't think there's any chance that they'll say, no, we won't review it. All right. Hey, thank you so much for helping to clarify what happened and what's likely to happen next. Sure. It's great to talk to you. Appreciate it very much. Again, we're talking about the Supreme Court that just issued its decision on the administration's DACA appeal. They uh, Monday declined to review the lower court ruling that requires the federal government to continue administering the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. And while there's a lot of speculation about the political implication of that decision, it really was a procedural uh, one. And I think it's also important to point out that there was uh, significant pressure in terms of the timing. Uh, it was uh, a long shot uh, at the uh, junk at this rather at this juncture of the year scheduling constraints uh, weigh heavily on the docket and the court adjourns in late June the agenda for a given term is generally set by January and given uh, that that's the case it would be quite unusual for the justices to reschedule another case for the current term at this late moment so there was that uh, weighing in on this procedural decision announced yesterday as well now the court signaled throughout last week that it would not grant the government's requests they had two scheduled opportunities to announce a decision respecting the petition. They remained silent each time, which is, it was a strong sign that it would reject that appeal. All told, the decision on Monday was not a surprising development. And as uh, Kevin Daly at the Heritage Foundation in the Daily Signal points out, the decision does not exhaust the Trump administration's options. Instead, it will revert to the normal appellate procedure and ask the Ninth Circuit to overturn Alsup's ruling. And that is uh, the uh, the judge that made the original um, ruling, Judge William Alsop uh, of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California that barred the administration from terminating DACA back in January. So the Ninth Circuit will be asked to overturn that lower court, that district court ruling. And if the Ninth Circuit declines to do so, the government may then petition the Supreme Court, which will undoubtedly take the case. Now, the decision casts uh, uncertainty upon the 680,000 DACA recipients currently inside the U.S. border, postponing any final decision. The prospect of a legislative solution to their predicament is currently rather thin, and that makes the judiciary the most likely venue for a decision as to their future. So. We'll continue to follow this story as it uh, as it moves uh, forward. But uh, again, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is where this will uh, will move next. So we'll see what uh, what happens. Uh, by the way, I noted that um, my uh, guest uh, Hans von Spakovsky had uh, written that he is confident that when the Supreme Court finally takes up the case, it will rule in favor of the Trump administration. President Obama's original unilateral action was unconstitutional, and he admitted as much. Uh, while still in the White House, President Trump had fully had full authority to rescind that executive overreach. So um, that's at least one man's opinion on what's likely to happen next. Now, when we come back, um, we're going to hear from a guest that suffered through some very challenging circumstances that um, limited her capacity physically to function. And it's interesting to hear what happens in the midst of tragedy. Someone who is a person of faith, 
um, who has to suffer a great deal. What do you learn in that process, not only about yourself, but what do you learn about God and his love, care and provision for you? And she um, writes about that in her uh, her fascinating book. We're going to get into that conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Kate Clark was a wife, an active mother of two. In 2009, she lived in Michigan when a tragic playground accident left her paralyzed from the neck down. Well, after surgery for her injured spine, she was told that she would likely never walk again. Facing the possibility of a life without being able to hug her children, to walk independently or hold her husband's hand, she prayed a prayer of rebellious hope and asked God for a miracle. Her book, Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope, she tells her story of miraculous recovery. Working with doctors and nurses at a rehabilitation clinic, she began improving in the months after her injury, eventually walking on her own. Her recovery was stunning, yet she wrestled with deep grief. Given a miracle, she still feels pain from her injury. How can she be grateful for her recovery while still grieving for the abilities she's lost? And why did she recover when patients she met with similar injuries did not? What good will come out of this tragic event? Well, her story reminds us that God is with us and faithful even in difficult circumstances. And while she experienced something miraculous, she's also endured suffering. She still lives in a broken world, experiencing pain from her injuries and limitations, even in her healing. Where I End reminds us all that God can bring unexpected good out of our suffering and that to have faith is to have rebellious hope. Catherine Elizabeth Clark is a wife to a gifted theologian and a mom of two bright kids all of whom bring merriment and humor to her days. She's a native of Detroit. She has uh, had the privilege of living in several great cities, including Toronto, Grand Rapids, and Chicago. With a background in psychology, she spent much of her last 20 years working and writing for a nationwide Christian radio and counseling ministry. The Clarks live in Wheaton, Illinois, and she joins us today to talk about her book, simply titled Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Can you tell us the story of your accident? Sure, I would love to. Um, so it was a pretty typical day uh, as they start out, and I was at my son's school, and it was such a lovely day that we decided to stay for recess. My daughter was four years old, and she was with me on this day. And my son kind of disappeared in a field far beyond uh, the school, my daughter was uh, swinging on the playground, and I kind of had just suggested a game of tag to the kids who were hanging on me. And, you know, before I knew it, we were just racing uh, about the playground, just having a wonderful time. I'm laughing. Um, I'm beating these kids at their own little game. There's several of them is um, chasing me because, as you probably um, have witnessed before, whenever an adult jumps into a game, pretty much all the kids are... <laughs> on that adult. So I have this growing kite string of kids on my heels, um, and I'm having a lot of fun. Um, but unbeknownst to me, at the same time we were having this game, there was a young boy who was climbing a large play structure full of tubes and slides. And he made his way to the top slide, um, and he just really wasn't very tempted by the slides. And instead, he had another idea. It was a little ill-fated. Um, but he climbed over the protective barrier. And just uh, as I was running, he bounded into the air. And his sneakers 
crashed on my head, mm. and the two of us just tumbled to the ground, and immediately um, his elbow shattered, and I was paralyzed from the neck down. What a what a tragedy. Now, at that moment, were you aware of the fact that you were unable to move, and how did you rally uh, someone to come and help? Right away, I knew um, that it was serious and that I couldn't move. Um, I could hear a little girl screaming for the boy to get off of me, and I didn't even know that he was on me. So I was just I was lying on my back. Um, I never lost consciousness. Um, and I think just between the boy's screams that his arm was broken, um, people became aware pretty quickly that something had happened. And so pretty soon a second grade teacher was at my side. Someone whisked the boy away right away to the office, and she just knelt down by me. And I think she, too, she said later she could just tell by the way um, I was laying on the witch heads, one flip flop on, one off. Um, she just had, she just knew it was bad. Um, and so eventually I think, you know, she's praying and hoping it's kind of like that moment in a football game where, if, you know, you just kind of wait a few minutes and that stunned person kind of rallies themselves and gets up. But that moment just did not happen. And, and um, I told, I told her, I just said, I, I need an ambulance. And someone held a phone to my ear. My husband was at home at the time working on his uh, dissertation. And so he was up at the school within a few minutes and, you know, found our kids and prayed with them and then was um, taken to the hospital with me. Now, was the prognosis immediate that it's not likely that you're going to walk again or did you have to have a surgery for them to make that determination? So... I think when the MRI results came back, that's when they knew it was really bad. Um, you can, um, I can still picture the hair doctor's face coming into, um, back into the room and, you know, just all hope had drained from his face. And he told us um, that they were looking for a surgeon who was willing and able to perform the operation. He said that there was obvious damage to the spinal cord. And when the surgeon came in, he um, he really didn't mince words. He just said, this is a Christopher Reeve level injury. Um, it is dangerously high. It is um, bad. It's, um, it's just one vertebrate lower than where Christopher Reeve was injured. So um, I was not on the ventilator um, at that time. I had a ventilator inserted for surgery. Um, I had surgery that evening. And when I came out of surgery, the doctor told my family and friends who were waiting that um, he was hopeful that I would come off the ventilator. And beyond that, hope was really discouraged. Mm. We're talking this afternoon about uh, Catherine Elizabeth Clark's um, very difficult circumstance in her book, Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue her story in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking with Catherine Elizabeth Clark. Her book is titled Where I End, and in it she writes a prayer for favor, adoration, and trust began on the playground wood chips. It was uttered by friends and family in some form or another in the hospital waiting room. This prayer would become the heartbeat of my broken life over the next days, months, year. It's still today indoors. You uh, just hours earlier had been an active mother of two. Uh, You now, due to a tragic accident, 
uh, have endured surgery, but have been told, your family at least, has been told that it's not likely that you will ever recover your ability to function um, and use uh, walk again and use your limbs. At that point, as a as a believer and having prayed the prayer of, uh, of for recovery, where do you go from there? And and how did you experience the miracle that surprised everyone? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. So we were very um, fortunate and blessed to be a part of a Christian community. And Grand Rapids, I don't know if you know much about that, but it's this great little Dutch community. Um, We're not from that area, but we instantly had um, lots of friends and family who surrounded us. And one of the lovely things I think about being a part of community is that you know, when maybe you're even in a place where you don't have the hope um, or the faith that the community really can hope um, and even trust in God for and with you. And so we leaned into uh, the truth that we knew that our Heavenly Father could heal, and we hoped that He would. Um, it certainly was uh, an interesting and Um, challenging parenting moment, especially for my husband. Uh, My daughter, who was four, had asked her daddy if it was okay that I would walk again. And so it was a real moment of, um, do we believe what we say we believe? And he told her, do indeed pray that mom can do that, um, even though the doctor said it wouldn't be possible. And so um, we were um, overjoyed to find that the Lord um, answered affirmatively um, to those prayers. Um, And I don't have, Georgine, one of those uh, pick up your mat and walk moments. That's Mm -hmm. not my story. Um, But what I did have um, was these just little itty-bitty pieces of progress. Uh, started with my left foot. And I could move that foot, and I moved it pretty much constantly because it was this little piece of normal that I gained. And then uh, little by little, we saw improvements. And so for for me, uh, it was a journey of relearning everything um, from you know, crawling, standing, you know, walking, holding a spoon. And it was a, a very long, arduous uh, process. Um, but we um, we had, like I said, a great community that saw us through it. Um, and I also was so very grateful for just the sweet presence of the Lord throughout it. Um, it is a true statement that Jesus Christ is present with us in our suffering and I, I am living testimony of that truth. You write about the fact that you were given a miracle, but that you also st- still feel pain uh, from your injury, um, which is a constant reminder of the event that resulted in um, your incapacitation. Describe a little bit of your capacity now and the pain that has been a part of your recovery. Sure. So I do everything from the neck down is is technically broken, if you will, although you might not know it just by looking at me. Um, I like to say that I was raised wounded, uh, and the truth is that though I can do a lot of things, there are many things um, that I can't do. I have, um, it's kind of like wearing mittens if you were to put them on your hands and constantly go through life like having gloves on. I don't have great fine motor skills to say the least. Um, I also have um, muscle issues. I have um, spatial issues, like my body doesn't quite understand with my my brain uh, where I am in space, which kind of results in 
you know, burns and bruises and things like that. Um, my right side is weaker than my left, which isn't great for things like balance. Um, I'm not able to run. It was a runner. So I just have a lot of, um, and then, the, well, the main thing is that I also have something called um, like a chronic nerve pain. It's kind of like this crazy buzzing, angry bees um, sensation that I have pretty much constantly. Um, and so I take medicine that can curb it, but it's not been able to eliminate it. So I do live very much in that middle place of gratitude and grief. Uh, my family and I know very well what it is like to uh, not be able to do anything. My kids have memories of feeding me and driving my power wheelchair. Um, and yet I'm incredibly, um, and so I, I, you know, I'm incredibly grateful that I'm not there and I can stand before you and say, this is an amazing thing that the Lord has done. And yet um, I have a body and it doesn't work as it was um, created to work. And so I think it's also, you know, I have, I live in a grief place as well um, and look forward to a day when that will, will not be. You deal with a lot of suffering in your story, uh, both in the accident and your recovery. What do you think uh, some uh, are some of the things that people get wrong about suffering? We tend to, in our culture, to assume that suffering is evidence that somehow um, God has abandoned us or that he's displeased with us. What do we get wrong in our understanding of suffering? Mm, that is true. I think that... Um when we are suffering, we often do think that we are somehow outside of the grip or the care of our Heavenly Father. Um, pain has a way of isolating us, not just from um, from one another. Um, you can be in a room full of people and not know that some of them are in a tremendous amount of pain, be it emotional or physical. Um, and it also makes us feel isolated sometimes from God. And I think that there, you know, there are a few things that I think that we sometimes um, get wrong about suffering. One is that I think that sometimes we have a hard time as Christians um, letting people grieve. I think we sometimes really want to, you know, skip to the be thankful and God is going to work this out for good and we want to be positive. And those are, I mean, it is a lovely truth that God works all things um, for his, for good. Um, and yet, I think we just want to be careful as as Christians that we aren't saying that in order to, you know, skip or to stunt that grieving process. So mm -hmm. um, we very much, you know, need to grieve. And we have good evidence of that. We've seen Jesus Christ, who knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. And yet he weeps. Um, he, and I just love that story, that he stops and he weeps, even though he knows he's going to work something for good. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, but on the flip side of that, I, I also think that sometimes we let grief have a primary place in our lives. And grief never gets to really be the star of our story. Um, so I think it's really important to know that as Christians, we're also called to live with a great deal of grit. Um, and perseverance, courage of heart. So I think that those are two kind of um, sides of uh, the suffering or traps that we can fall into. Well, the book is beautifully written. You tell your story well, and it challenges all to consider 
uh, the goodness of God, even in the very difficult circumstances. Again, the book is titled Where I End, the Story of Tragedy, Truth, and Rebellious Hope. Catherine Elizabeth Clark is the author, and it's published by Moody. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be with you. Appreciate it very much. She writes, we belong in the light, but we live in the shadow, the shadow of brokenness, of despair, of sickness and sin. We do not, however, live alone in the shadow. We are joined by the triune God who suffers with us. The enemy whispers, you are alone, you are not seen, nor are you loved. The blood and wounds of Jesus, however, say otherwise. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and this is our final segment. Well, Billy Graham met with every president of the United States since Harry Truman. And today, Bill Clinton and yesterday, George W. Bush paid their respects to Billy Graham, whose body lies in repose in his beloved Charlotte. Well, the 43rd president of the United States, United States rather, visited the grounds of the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina, on Monday to pay his respects to a dear friend. Former President George W. Bush, former First Lady Laura Bush, arrived at about 345 yesterday. They were warmly greeted by Franklin and Jane Graham. The two couples then spent about 30 minutes inside the family home, uh, home place where Mr. Graham is lying in repose until Tuesday night. Uh, after their uh, private visit, the Bushes and the Grahams came outside and former President Bush gave uh, some remarks before quietly getting back into their car and driving away. He said, if there's such a thing as a humble shepherd of the Lord, Billy Graham is that person. I am unbelievably blessed to have met him. I also had the honor of bringing my mother and dad's greetings to uh, Franklin and the family. Billy Graham and dad were great buddies, and I know he wished he could come today. He's not moving around too much these days, but his spirit and heart are here. God bless Billy Graham. Well, the Graham family home place, the home uh, Mr. Graham grew up in, is now situated just in front of the library, an ongoing crusade that presents the message Mr. Graham preached for decades. Well, today it was uh, former President Bill Clinton who arrived at the um, at the burial uh, place of the former president. Bill Clinton was um, 11 years old when he heard Billy Graham preach in his hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas. On Tuesday, today, he became the second U.S. president to visit the grounds of the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina, as Mr. Graham's uh, body remains there in repose through this evening. President uh, Clinton and Franklin Graham uh, greeted each other in front of the library with smiles and a handshake. Um, uh, Hillary and I are saddened by the passing of our friend Billy Graham, one of the most important religious figures in American history, the former president said in a statement the day Mr. Graham passed away. His powerful words and the conviction they carried touched countless hearts and minds. I would like to thank Franklin Graham and the Graham family for making me feel welcome, Clinton said. I'm just one of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people who in their own way will find some way to say thank you and goodbye to Billy Graham. Well, Mr. Graham's closed casket has been placed in the Graham family home place, his childhood home, which is now uh, in front of the library. After stopping by the home to pay Mr. Graham uh, one more visit and talking with Franklin Graham for about 45 minutes, Clinton commented on the late evangelist saying, I think he was profoundly a profoundly good man who conveyed simple beliefs uh, that we can claim kinship with God by asking. He showed his faith by his works and his words, his life. Well, uh, President Clinton mentioned that he read a story recently about how pastors have to be careful uh, getting too close to politicians, saying those of us who are Christians believe in a God of second chances and the politicians need those more than anybody else. Uh, Again, um, Bill Clinton visiting the fiery preacher as he lays uh, in repose.
Well, Billy Graham's funeral is going to be streamed live online on Friday, March the 7th, uh, 2nd, rather. Uh, his uh, funeral service is private. The public can watch this live stream. It begins at 10 a.m. Eastern time, which, what is that, 6... Uh, 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time. The service itself is scheduled to, be, to begin at noon Eastern time. Um, this Friday, that private funeral will be held at the uh, library in Charlotte, North Carolina. About 2,300 invited guests are expected to attend. Following the service, Mr. Graham will be buried beside his late wife, Ruth, whose grave is at the front of the cross-shaped uh, brick uh, walkway in the library's prayer garden. The funeral is expected to last about 90 minutes. It will be held under a large tent that's been uh, constructed in the main parking lot in front of the library. The tent serves as a reminder of how Mr. Graham's ministry launched under the Canvas Cathedral, a white canvas tent during the 1949 crusade in downtown Los Angeles, where 350,000 people heard him share the gospel over a period of eight weeks. It was Mr. Graham's explicit intent that his funeral service reflect and reinforce the gospel message he preached for more than 60 years. Mark DeMoss, a spokesman for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, said Graham's oldest son, uh, Frank Franklin will bring the funeral message, Dr. Donald Wilton and Dr. David Bruce. They're going to speak at the uh, internment service as well. Dr. Wilton was Mr. Graham's pastor and a close friend in recent years. Dr. Bruce served for 23 years as Mr. Graham's executive assistant. President Donald Trump, who released a statement last week in regards to Mr. Graham, plans to attend the service. And as millions are expected to watch the funeral service for God's ambassador, the man himself would uh, would have wanted only one thing for the gospel to be spread, to be preached. His life work will continue as the love and hope of Jesus Christ is shared on Friday. Thousands have said thank you and goodbye to Billy Graham as his body lies in repose in Charlotte. And you can go to the official Billy Graham Evangelistic Association website and see some very moving pictures when his body was returned to Charlotte, where he grew up and where the association is located. The streets were lined with people shoulder to shoulder, three to five deep, all of the overpasses. Fire trucks were um, on those overpasses back to back with their cranes as high as they can go, American flags hoisted and flying from them. It was a very moving scene as his motorcade passed through his hometown. Um, And again, it was just very, uh, very, uh, very moving. Thousands of people have uh, uh, gone to that very location to honor uh, the late Billy Graham. Well, his body is going to lie in uh, in honor in the Capitol Rotunda in D.C. tomorrow. A little over 24 hours after his death, the U.S. Speaker of the House announced that his body will lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda. On Wednesday, the 28th, tomorrow, the Capitol Rotunda will open to the public from approximately 1 p.m. to 8 p.m. The lying in honor period will end at 10 a.m. on Thursday, March the 1st. House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell sent a letter to Billy Graham's eldest son, Franklin Graham, formally asking for his approval for that rare honor. Congress joins the American people in expressing our sincerest condolences to you on the passing of Reverend Billy Graham, they wrote. In recognition of Reverend Graham's long and distinguished service to the nation, it is our intention to ask the House of Representatives and the Senate to permit that his remains lie in honor in the rotunda of the Capitol. With your approval, we will move forward with these arrangements so that Americans 
Christians have this opportunity to pay their respects to Reverend Graham before he's laid to rest. Well, the tradition of lying in honor in the case of private citizens and lying in state for members of government dates back to 1852. Since then, only 31 individuals, including 11 U.S. presidents, have been chosen to be honored in such a way. Billy Graham will become the 32nd overall and only the fourth private citizen to receive that distinction. He'll join a legendary list that includes Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, and Rosa Parks. Those who visit the Capitol Rotunda to honor Mr. Graham on the 28th and March the 1st will see a simple pine plywood casket made by inmates at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana. The casket has a wooden cross nailed on the top. It seemed appropriate that Mr. Graham's pine plywood casket will be supported by a pine board, um, a raised platform constructed hastily after the death of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, It will be draped with a black cloth similar to one used in 1865 when Lincoln lay in state. Speaker Ryan's statement about the plans to honor Mr. Graham in Washington, D.C. included the following description of his life. Reverend Billy Graham was an American evangelist and minister internationally known for his devout faith, inherent humility, and inclusive nature. Born in 1918, he spread the gospel in 185 countries during his 99 years on earth, touching the lives of many and forever changing the course of the world's spiritual health. He served as an advisor to two to 12 consecutive U.S. presidents, reached millions through radio, television, and film. Reverend Graham is survived by his five children, multiple grand and great-grandchildren, fellow North Carolinians, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. As I thought about his life and his legacy, I thought about my own. What will be said of me in those final days? And I know we tend to exaggerate, you know, the goodness of a person once their life has come to an end. Oh, they were a great person. We overlook the fact that they might have been a scoundrel. But I just hope it can be said of me and of you as well that we served Christ well, we honored him, that we shared his gospel, and that um, one day we'll hear more than anything else, well done, thou good and faithful servant. As uh, North Carolinians uh, lined the streets and the overpasses uh, to get a glimpse of the motorcade carrying the body of Billy Graham, I noticed there were signs that simply said, well done. A lot of people wouldn't understand what that means, but that is more than anything else what Billy Graham longed for uh, to hear from the Lord Jesus himself. And I noted at the uh, website where all of this was um, uh, was illustrated, the scripture Galatians 614 was the last word that was printed uh, by the association, but far, uh, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians six fourteen. Would that we would live a life that would reflect the meaning of that scripture. Once again, I want to mention that Billy Graham's funeral is going to be streamed live online Friday. It starts at about 7 a.m. Pacific time. About 2,300 invited guests are expected to attend that event. That's on Friday following the uh, uh, viewing in the rotunda. It's a closed casket, but uh, paying one's last respects. And the service itself is scheduled to begin at noon Eastern time. So I'm not sure what the... uh, uh, Funeral service um, at, at, at 10 a.m. Eastern time is is going to be. But anyway, that's 7 a.m. our time. Um, it's expected, as I mentioned, to last about 90 minutes uh, held under the large tent uh, constructed in the main parking lot there.
All right, tomorrow I'm going to be away from the mic, but on Friday we're looking forward to a conversation with Deborah Tilden, who has a ministry that really helps to inform women about the real cost of abortion. We'll talk with her and others, so I hope you'll join us. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.